Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everyone. I'm Rebecca Ford, Head of Collaboration and Learning Design at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to be hosting this event and to welcome you to Designing Our Futures. We're here to both celebrate the winners of the 2021 RSA Student Design Awards, or SDAs for short, and to hear from a past winner about her design journey. The RSA Student Design Awards is a global competition for higher education students and recent graduates, which is focused around a set of project briefs that are rooted in really complex challenges. And designer and social innovator Jenny Winnell won an SDA award in 1999 when she was a student at the Glasgow School of Art. We're absolutely thrilled that she is here with us today to deliver a keynote on the need for radical creation to meet the complex challenges that are facing us in the world today. So challenges ranging from climate change and aging to growing inequality and the future of work. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that we're recording this event. So we'll be posting the video on the RSA events YouTube channel tomorrow, and we'll send everyone the link so that you can share it with friends and colleagues. We are absolutely delighted that so many of you are joining us this evening, and we're looking forward to involving you in the conversation. There's going to be an opportunity for you to put your questions to Jenny after her talk. So if you have a question, please do type it in the Q&A box that you can find in your Zoom toolbar and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible later on. We also have a Twitter hashtag for the event, that's RSA Design, so do feel free to get involved there too. We also wanted to let you know that you're actually taking part in a historic first. So this is our first virtual public RSA Student Design Awards ceremony. We usually would host this event at the RSA House in London. And then last year when the pandemic hit, we opted for a more intimate closed virtual ceremony. But this year we, uh, we decided on a hybrid option. So our 2021 winners have all actually just received their awards in a private ceremony um, with Jenny and with their families and our supporters um, and everyone's now joining us on this call uh, along with a wider audience to hear Jenny speak and to continue the celebration. Uh, so before heading into Jenny's talk I want to say a huge congratulations to this year's winners. We can't see you but we know you're here in the in the virtual room and I also do want to say an enormous thank you to our partners and judges and participating universities for your fantastic support and expertise. It's so good to have so many of you here from around the world celebrating with us today. Now I'm going to just give some brief context on the SDAs and the incredible work our winners did this, this year. All, you know, it's worth saying whilst designing through various constraints that were imposed by, by COVID-19. And as I talk about the past SDA year, you're going to be able to see on screen uh, the, the winning entries for this year's competition. Now, many of you listening will know that the RSA is a global community of over 30,000 people uh, committed to addressing the complex challenges of our time. But for those of you who are uh, less familiar with the RSA Student Design Awards, 
it's actually the world's longest running student design competition, which started way back in 1924. So now in its 97th year, there's an amazing legacy behind the awards, um, but it's also constantly adapting and evolving in, in new ways. So whilst the um, awards originally focused on a, a greater number of, sort of narrower briefs for students in specific design disciplines, in more recent years, the awards have had a, a significant overhaul. And today, our mission is to engage students from across disciplines and across the globe in open innovation, using design to address complex social and environmental challenges. And we're always looking at how to to grow our impact and this includes the journey that we've been on um, in the past couple of years to make open innovation more accessible and inclusive. So that's involved uh, hosting international collaborative workshops focusing on different areas within our, our judging criteria, um, including a whole series on systems design workshops in partnership with the Circular Design Lab. And we've also actually redesigned our whole um, judging and panel curation processes, um, as well as this year creating a global needs-based bursary for international students, which has already gone on to promote and platform talented global applicants, into, including two of our, our winners. So each year we are blown away by the creativity and ingenuity of the students who enter the, the SDAs. But what a year it's been to, to try and not only complete your studies, but also to choose to tackle these, these complex issues as well. Uh, we moved our competition completely online this year with launch events and workshops and briefing sessions all held virtually. And I have to say that, that students and educators adapted so well. And at the RSA, we believe that in crisis also comes opportunity and, and learning. And it was clear that this virtual model also helped us reach a more global audience. And we, we keep hearing from students how much they enjoyed the chance to connect with other students from different courses and places and countries as they, they grappled with the, the brief topics through our workshop programme. So the names and images and, and projects that you can see on screen now are the students who selected one of our competition briefs to work on this year and, and then went on to win with their responses. Um, so a bit more on the briefs, we partnered with a range of cross-sector companies, so not-for-profits, social, social enterprises, um, some, some corporates as well to develop eight really challenging briefs that would push the students to develop and apply their design capacities in new ways. So this year's competition included open briefs like redistributing health, which asked how might we improve access to healthcare for underserved communities Another brief looked at woodlands as a, a resource for community development, whilst another focused on how social media can be a tool to bridge societal divides instead of creating polarisation, as it often does today. And then others focused on the challenge of inclusive, age-friendly housing, um, and then how to apply biomimicry principles to the textile industry. 
Then through our animation brief, which is called Moving Pictures, we also challenged students to make really high quality animations that could bring to life two audio clips from the RSA's events programme. So one was about climate change and another was about how we can encourage individuals to uh, think and act for the long term. So all the entries for these briefs were judged in a, a, a rigorous two-stage process and the, the panels were so impressed with the quality and optimism of, of the winner's work this year. So we are just so excited to support this new cohort of socially driven designers and, and really eager to see where their individual uh, journeys go on to take them. Now, having shared a bit about the design challenges this year um, and the, the students on those rolling slides who brought such exciting ideas to the table, I would now like to reintroduce uh, or properly introduce Jenny Winnell. So for those of you who don't know Jenny, she is a designer and founder of AltNow, which is a group of international collaborators that are leading practical programs for systems innovation. And she's also director of social innovation um, for the Rockwell Foundation in Denmark, where she leads systemsinnovation.org. And Jenny was a early pioneer of service design. So starting out at the Red Unit within the Design Council back in the early 2000s, um, and then working for LiveWork, and then going on to be one of the founders of Participle, where she spent 10 years designing and scaling the, the radical public services that are outlined in the book, Radical Help. Jenny's also a member of Systems Change Collective, uh, the, the Point People, and a fellow at Zinc Missions, an advisory board, a member for the National Lottery Community Fund's Growing Great Ideas Fund, and teaches uh, design for social impact in various countries around the world, Denmark, Canada, and the UK. Um, Jenny is also a, a, a critical RSA friend and collaborator. So I recently had the pleasure of working with Jenny on the RSA and AltNow's Economic Security Impact Accelerator, and she has been a, a massive source of learning and inspiration for me personally. So... But before all of this, she won an RSA Student Design Award as a young designer at the Glasgow School of Art. And through her time since then, she's gained tremendous insight and experience on all things innovation and social change and is here today to share um, just a few snippets of her wisdom from doing that work um, with us. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's such a pleasure to be doing something like this with you and also with uh, the fantastic uh, award winners that I met earlier this evening. Um, I'm really happy to be celebrating um, with you this evening, especially after the, 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 award, the, the award that I won made such a difference um, to my life. So I told my mum the other night that I was going to give this talk and the conversation uh, went like this. Um, so I said, uh, I'm going to give a talk at the Student Design Awards next week. And my mum says, oh, is that when you went to, the same as when you went to London to, to, for your award? And I said, yeah, that's right. Um, it was really life-changing, um, wasn't it? And she said, uh, yes, 
And then there was a pause. And then she said, it was terrible. <laughs> and what she means is that she then had to see me off at the airport because I used the award to travel to, to India uh, to work for a small design firm called Idea Matrix in the suburbs of Mumbai. And of course, she probably thought she'd never see me um, again. And it was life changing. I learned to do proper design. Um, I was designing autogas filling stations uh, for, for Tata. But it also opened a door to a whole other way of understanding um, the world that had really been missing um, to me growing up on the west coast of, of Scotland. And over the last 20 years of working as a social innovator and a service designer, I've been lucky enough to, to work with many different types of people in many different places. And each of those experiences has opened a door into um, another world, other ways of thinking, other ways of living otherwise. And there are two moments that really stick in my mind. Um, the first is in 2010. Uh, so it's midnight. I'm sleeping on a mattress on the floor of a house in Swindon. And I'm sleeping, sleeping under a set of curtains that Tina has given me accidentally, thinking that they were bed linen. And Tina's family are one of the most notorious uh, families in Swindon at that time. Um, they've been evicted seven times in seven years and they cost uh, the state somewhere in the region of a quarter of a million pounds a year. It's the early years of our work at Participle and I'm running an experience prototype with Tina uh, to find out what could be possible if she and families like hers are given the space and the resources to lead their own change. And to do that, they have chosen people from across the council to work with. And on this day, something very profound has happened because the families have realised that by working with them, the frontline staff that they've chosen to work with them, have discovered that their own family relationships have got better. So this is a really profound moment because in that moment, the distinction between helper and helped has shifted. And then the second is in 2017. It's evening time um, in the Rocky Mountains. And I'm listening to Leroy Little Bear tell a story. It's the first Alt Now programme, and we've brought 20 leaders together to develop innovations to close the gap uh, between rich and poor. And Leroy, is a, he's both a Harvard physicist and an elder of the Blackfoot First Nations people, and we're talking about the future of work. And at first, I think that the stories he's, he's telling is going nowhere. And then something curious happens. As the story he tells unfolds, it starts to weave together layer upon layer of understanding. And the way he talks about work is not about jobs, but about relatedness and about relatedness as the means of community. So I come away from that conversation, having just caught a glimpse of the sharp contrast between that feeling of deep interdependence and our Western concept of jobs, isolated, disconnected um, from community. And I, I understand something about that, that long-term wealth is actually what lies in the quality of those relationships. But I also realize that the language that we have for our economic systems doesn't allow us to think in that way. So these two moments have stayed with me because I think they say something 
about how our lives are intimately connected to the lives of others and why it is that we need to remake the systems that we live by. So I'm going to talk today um, about why it is that I think that system innovation is the real challenge of our times. So as a society, we're on the cusp of several profound transitions to low carbon living, to a landscape of work transformed by automation, to an aging population. And to make these transitions successfully, we need not just new solutions, but very different systems. Moving from systems, the systems that we have to the systems that we need, so from system one to system two, if you like, requires a very different kind of leadership because it's not about optimizing or fixing the problems that are inherent in the current system. It's about creating the conditions for a different and better system to emerge. So in other words, it's not a technical challenge, it's a creative challenge. And that is why design has such an important role to play. So there's always a massive innovation going on inside system one, elaborating it, making it better. And that can be very worthwhile. But in many cases, it serves to reinforce systems that actually now shouldn't be reinforced. So the challenge that we have is to make an equal, if not greater investment in design uh, for system two. So what does it actually mean to design for system innovation? So firstly, we need to go deep. So as designers, we should be concerned less with uh, the apps and more with the operating system, if you like, the deep structure of the system, the beliefs out of which it's arisen and the code it's built on. That's what I learned from listening to Leroy Little Bear that evening. And it's difficult to create an equitable housing system, for example, without digging right back into the assumptions behind private property law, like Alistair Parvin is doing with his Wiki House initiative, or transform our relationship with nature like Indy Johar is doing by looking at what happens to our urban planning systems if we assign rights to trees. And the most transformative social innovations come not from scientific inventions necessarily, but from breakthrough social uh, philosophies. So Karen McCluskey in Glasgow has all but eliminated knife crime in the city by working with a paradigm that sees violence not as a crime, but as a disease, and therefore as an academic epidemic to be contained. And changing that paradigm has led to a wave of innovation that's broken the spread of innovation across the city. And secondly, we need to tune our design skills in uh, to make things that actively shift how systems work. So when systems change, when there is a shift in the way that power, resources and relationships operate together to meet a new purpose, and we can deliberately design things, whether that's services, platforms, business models, that distribute power differently, that open up new flows of resources, that configure new relationships. That might be through simple designs like Jacina Vink's stethoscope, which changes the nature of the relationship between doctor and patient, or through more complex platforms like Airbnb that's transformed whole sectors by opening up peer-to-peer -peer, um, resources. And thirdly, we need to design, uh, the, design for the process of transition itself. So that means designing for all of the things that make an, a conducive environment um, for change whether that's creating a new narrative that changes people's perceptions of an issue, 
creating a new data platform that makes it possible to value something new or a forum that deepens the relationships between different actors in a system. And it's also likely to mean unbuilding the systems that we have. So dismantling, laying to rest parts of systems that no longer uh, serve us. And then fourthly, I think that we need to challenge our own assumptions about what design is and how it works. So many of our current ideas about design stem from a modernist era. era. We automatically think of, uh, we value newness and progress. We think of man as the central protagonist. We think of truth as objective and worlds as universal rather than plural. And some of the most exciting work going on at the moment is coming from communities that do not hold those views, like the Indigenous Systems Lab in Australia, and opening design itself up to these critical different ways of knowing um, will be very important. So all of that can sound like a very tall order. And this was a hard talk to put together because I think we're similarly at a point of transition in how we understand design and the kind of practice that, that we need. But here are some things that I've learned over the last uh, few, few years that I think um, can help. And the first is to change the model um, of uh, innovation. So most innovation models start with many ideas and then they funnel down to one solution. That doesn't really work for system innovation because the job isn't to fit into the current markets, it is to build out a new system and therefore a new market. So we need to think of it a little bit more like a loud hailer amplifying out. The system innovation is a collaborative unfolding process. So it helps to think of what you're creating as a starting point for other people to build on and then look for where you can join the, the dots to others who might be heading in a similar direction. And then all of the work that we did um, at Participle was about inversing the patterns that we could see were keeping people trapped in cycles of dependence. So we set out to create new kinds of uh, services, a new generation of public services built on a new set of principles where those systems get stronger the more people use them instead of being burdened by design. And I've realized over time that that is a, a strategy for managing the complexity of the challenges that we're looking at. So the more radical the steps you take, the easier it is to transcend the complexity you're dealing with because you're changing several levers um, at once. And I, I heard last year um, an architecture firm called Accept present their new energy generating building in Schiphol. And I was struck by the fact that they said if they had had the goal of reducing energy consumption, they would only have been able to make very marginal um, improvements uh, to reducing the consumption. But by changing the goal to energy generation, they were able to really transform um, how people thought and therefore how things became possible. And throughout history, exemplars have done uh, have done that, that have really shifted whole systems of thought and practice. So Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon prison is a very famous example, designed in the round with cells open to a central watchtower. Its premise was that discipline could be achieved simply through the idea of being watched. And so that model went on to influence systems of control across all modern industrial institutions from factories to CCTV. And this is Stanislavski's production of Chekhov's play, The Seagull in, uh, in Russia in the 
in the earlier part of the century. And it was the first time that, that actors came together as an ensemble to rehearse together and to really try and understand the characters and how they could bring the characters to, to life and the subtext of what Chekhov um, had written. And it was the first time the audience was considered a, a very integral part of the performance, invited into an atmosphere that was created by props and scenery and costumes designed specifically for that production. And it marked a really pivotal moment um, that changed the future um, of, of how theatre is done and continues to influence um, productions today. But at the time, it was a very unusual experience to be part of. And so I think one important thing about this work is that it's important to make things that don't actually fit very easily. So I think much design practice in recent times has, has been about making things fit, agile development to meet customer expectations, prototyping to validate pre-existing assumptions. But system innovation is not about designing to fit existing mental models and habits. It's about shaping new ones. So we try to deliberately make things that don't fit, that are, that are different enough to reshape the, the system conditions around the situations we're working with. But they still have to be sustainable somehow. And of course, the danger is that as those system shifting innovations grow, they end up being co-opted back into the very systems that they set out to, to change. So systems innovators have to practice the art of facing both ways at once. So creating things that are viable in the current system um, whilst opening up for the new. And I've learned over, over time that there's much greater potential for unlocking change when you focus on the people or the issues that are in between. So when Hilary Cotterman and I, and I were working on employment at Participle, we realized that whilst there's lots of effort focused on the unemployed, the real cost of the economy is underemployment. So people who are in work, but not progressing. And actually, if you design for them to progress, you create a dynamic that opens up new employment opportunities as they move on. And it means that you can use their working networks as a, as a resource to those who are trying to move into work in the first place. And I think that one way to move forward um, when there's no consensus about the nature um, of the challenge or how to address it, which is something we come across a lot in the, the projects that we initiate or we start, is, is really to make something that people can respond to. And I think that many designers see their role as neutral facilitators. And I believe you can't sit on the bench when you do this work. You have to recognize your position and implicate yourself. You have to have skin in the game. But I do think you can work with what you might call intentional emergence. So making things with intent and then using the back talk from the context, what emerges as a result to inform uh, what happens next. But of course, to enter into that, you have to loosen up your own starting point. So you have to, you have to find different ways of approaching the spaghetti that is the the challenge that you're um, addressing. So we're doing this on mental health at the moment um, with Rockwall in, in Denmark. So we're trying to look at, we're trying to look backwards into history to understand the connection between investments in mental well-being and how that's connected to productivity and work and how that has played out over time. 
Um, we've tried to think about it very differently. So what if it's not a mental health crisis? What if it's a crisis of meaning? What does that tell us? How can we think about it differently? And, and, the, and we're also looking at how we can elevate um, the perspectives and work of people who are thinking about it in very different ways. For example, uh, the community that's starting to talk about what, it, what black joy is and how is that different to ideas of mental well-being. But lastly, I think it's really important to be daring in what you do. So to use your design skills to provoke, to probe, to illuminate, to elevate the, the very marginal and to reveal radical possibility. So we tend to start with things that feel like the most transgressive things, the things that the system finds hardest to do as we did with Tina um, and her family. And then we use the bruises, as my team in Denmark would say, because you can only really learn how a system can shift by experiencing uh, where the resistance is. So I think it's important to recognize um, at this point in time that we're addressing uh, much more sophisticated challenges than we were 10 years ago. We know much more, the challenges are much more interconnected. But it's important to remember that we ourselves are part of a long lineage of change. The systems that we have were created by people in response to the challenges of their times and, and people can remake those systems. And one way to, to ensure that happens is to use your design skills to help to build the imaginative capacity of many people in many different settings. So we might say if user needs and problem solving were the design tools of 2010, then perhaps imagination and possibility giving uh, the design tools of 2020. And if the Student Design Award winners that I've met this evening um, are anything to go by, this graduating year of students already has the collective capacity to really imagine and shape the world to come. So I wish you all the best as you go out into the world and, and make that happen. Thank you, Jenny. What a fantastic range of stories and insights and provocations around the whole sort of role and potential of creativity and imagination in systems innovation. Um, I'm going to start by jumping in and asking you a, a couple of questions before opening up for some questions that we have um, crowdsourced already from this year's Student Design Award winners and also from our, our wider audience. Um, so I think the first question I have is, I think fr from the learnings and examples that you've shared, I definitely get a sense of the, um, the, the breadth and variety of the, the roles that you've um, inhabited over the years. And I wonder if you could perhaps just share a bit more about the sort of places in the system that you've put yourself in or operated from to do this sort of systemic design and innovation work and perhaps a bit about what you were able to sort of bring or gain from being a designer in so many different roles. Yeah, of course, Rebecca, that's such a good question because I think it's all in an experimentation really to try and to try and do exactly like that, that to, to put yourself in different roles and see what, what that does. Um, so I think, you know, we started out um, with participle being um, sort of self-starting entrepreneurs. You know, we, we tried to go out there and say, 
we think we could do something different about an aging population who wants to work with us and we built a partnership um, around the work to to make that happen um, and that has some advantages so that meant that we were um, we were very able to sort of move where we felt the biggest opportunity was and to do things in a very different way so we very built up a very different sort of culture um, around the the work but it did make it hard for us to um, to invest in some of the very long-term infrastructure building that you need to do when you're really trying to trying to shift a system. So there are some things that we tried to do at our small scale that we really needed the, the scale that that government could bring, for example, to reach um, across the country. And then you also made me think that a few years ago. I, I thought, okay, well, why don't I go and work with um, a big multinational corporation and try and see what that, that brought. And so I ended up um, working with a pharmaceutical company um, trying to uh, build a big legacy project about raising the health of whole uh, towns and cities. I went and lived in Galesburg in Illinois for a period of time. And that, that brought with it an enormous level of ambition and sort of traction with the, the local town that we were working with and uh, absolutely no commitment to follow through from the multinational. So I felt that I'd really sort of put my heart and soul into building a relationship with that, that town to, to really sort of elevate the level of, of health and then I was in a terrible position of not being able to sort of follow through on on that when the you know the leadership sort of shifted around and it wasn't the the most exciting thing on the corporate agenda. So I think I really got burnt by that experience and it's made me um, sort of more committed to the the sort of the civil society infrastructure that I think is necessary to hold this kind of work. That's so interesting. Thank you. Um, I was just thinking as you were speaking, perhaps a bit of a follow-up um, to that question is, um, are there any particular sort of tensions <laughs> or dilemmas that you've had to face or learn to work with as you have navigated these very different roles in lots of different systems throughout your, your career? So I actually think the the biggest difficulty if you come from a design background is that when you're doing this kind of system changing work, there is no client. So you have to you have to sort of treat the future system as your client in a way. So we try and help our, our teams to to sort of build accountability for sort of where they're headed and where they're going um, by trying to to kind of find um, people or markers or institutions that they can they think can constitute the commissioners of the future system for them in a way so I do think that is a kind of dilemma because it's it's then um, it places a lot of sort of responsibility I think on on the on the teams to to navigate uh, the sort of dilemmas and decisions that come up often come up when you're doing this kind of work, which is usually a sort of payoff between the longer term system mission and the short term realities of where you need to move to, to actually get traction with the, with the work. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow, F- future system as client. I think that's a brilliant thing to be sort of writing on a post-it note and <laughs> sticking on my on my wall and continually referencing. Um, I'm going to go now to one of the questions that we've had from this year's SDA winners. Um, got quite a, a specific one actually, and. Um, this is about the Step Into Systems Innovation Conference that you hosted last November. Um, so we actually shared that with um, this year's SDA participants on our, our toolkit, and I attended it at the time. Uh, I would yeah, really, really highly recommend watching the sessions back to anyone who's, who's here in the audience hearing about it for the first time. Um, but Sarah Heffernan is one of our, our winners who attended that and was really keen to hear from you. What hit home for you as the host of that, you know, really pioneering conference that was spread over a whole week? Is there a particular session or, or key takeaway that's really stayed with you? Well, thank you. And thank you, Sarah. It was lovely to meet you this evening. Thanks for such a good question. Um, so I actually think we had a session that was about um, the deeper change, so the culture change and that goes on when you're doing systems work. And we had uh, Diane Rusin um, from the Winnipeg Boldness Project in Canada speaking. And I think um, the thing that resonated most about that for me, and I know Diane, we've worked together um, before in the past, and she runs a an initiative that's about building a very different way of working with Indigenous families in Winnipeg. And something that she said in that session really struck me. She said, you know, we had systems before, um, before uh, Canada was colonised and they worked well for us. And there's enormous amounts of knowledge wrapped up in our culture that's almost completely denied by the modern systems that we have that are supposed to be you know, about modernizing um, and in, in effect to having the opposite uh, effect. And I think listening to her talk so um, so clearly about how that happens and why that is, um, I think was very profound. And um, because I think that's not just a question of you know, very preceding cultures, colonizing cultures. It's, it's also about what a modern welfare state does and how it, uh, how it sort of, uh, turns everything into transactions rather than relations. And so I think, um, I think we all took away a very different sort of way of understanding and, and a sort of language. I think something happened in that session where people suddenly felt they were able to express the challenges of system change through a very, very different kind of language. I think that's an important aspect of language and narrative. It's important aspects of being able to open up um, new kinds of options as we're looking at new kinds of systems. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And thanks, Mari, as well, has um, posted a link where everyone can watch watch back that recording and all of the, the others from that week. They're, they're really fantastic. Um, We've had a few questions come in from the audience. Um, I'm gonna uh, take on now around diversity and marginalized voices in service design. Um, just a, a question if you could please share 
any thoughts you have on that, Jenny? And also, yeah. uh, thank you for a brilliant talk <laughs> along with that thank question. You very much. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of what I talked about this evening is coming from work that Charlie Ledbetter and I have been doing, which is around the the, uh, the system innovation work, and also work that Kat Drew and Cassie Robinson and I have been doing and thinking about, like where the edges of design practice are and where it is that we need to shift. And I think I said something in my talk just now about the sort of realisation of uh, the, the, the epistemologies and the sort of worldview that a lot of our, our, our assumptions about design and how it happens um, come from, which we really need to understand and challenge if we're going to be able to you know, design systems that do actually work uh, for many people who are living in many different sort of truths and realities. Um, and I think one thing that I've really learned through working with my colleagues at Rockwell is that um, in any, any system that, you, uh, that emerges or is created uh, tends to produce a kind of um, exclusionary effect towards certain groups of people. It's, it, it just sort of happens that way that... Uh, but it tends to create subjects and systems create subjects, if, if you like. And so I think what we're seeing in the work is that it's, um, it's not really a question of, you know, whether, like whether we take a political stance in the work or not. It's much more of a question of where it is that we can see the, um, that the, the system is not representing or not elevating uh, the, the, ways of understanding that are being held by some of those those groups and really doing the work of elevating um, those ways of thinking and understanding as, as we, we do that. And I think it's it's really very difficult to do that unless you can sort of build that uh, that diversity into your own team. And that's that is very challenging, especially for a small country like like Denmark that's not very diverse in its population in the first place it's, it's difficult to, to to do but I think that's what we all have to work towards. Yeah thank you and uh, another question's just come in which um, is about the um, potentially unintended consequences of some of the work you might be doing so um, the question is I wonder how you and your the teams that you're a part of of navigate that yeah. um like what if you are inadvertently creating some you know, negative impacts elsewhere and how do you actually create the space to check in with one another about ongoing impact and how you respond yeah. to that so i think i i said earlier something about um sort of using the resistance that you experience in the, the system and anna bernie has this very nice um analogy of what it's like to to be a to be a potter using the the material the resistance that the, the material clay has when you're trying to sort of shape it and form it into to something, and so I think we try and um, work together to read the signals in the context, both positive and negative, as a way of understanding where there's resistance to to change, understanding where things have suddenly opened up in a way that we didn't expect. Um, but the work that we do is also very long. So in a way, we're trying to use um, our, our sort of prototyping methods, not so much as a, a vehicle to uh, test assumptions or hypotheses, 
but as a way of sort of pushing out the, the room for operation in a system. So to try and use it to sort of push out you know, where the perceived um, boundaries are so that we have a, a sort of different kind of space to try things in. But that's still a kind of contained space in, to some degree. Like we, we, can, we can sort of see um, within that, within the network of people that we're working with how things are, are changing. Um, and at Rockwell, we also do a lot of work with uh, random control trials and evaluations and that sort of thing. So we're trying to marry together the, the process of doing system innovation with ways of evaluating some of those effects as we go along. Mm, thank you. Um, and actually, there's a, a, another question specifically on process that's just come in, which is um, when you're working with your uh, commissioners or, or stakeholders, how much time do you spend on explaining your process versus just getting on and showing or, you know, immersing them in it? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good question. I think this has sort of changed over time. I think we had to do a lot of explaining um, years ago that we don't have to do so much of now. And I think that tells you where the design industry has got to because there is a certain amount of language that is much better understood than it, than it has been um, before. But I don't think that's, I still think you can do all the explaining in the world and it's not at all the same as the, the real experience of being in the mess um, because this work is messy and it's uncomfortable. And I think people tend to think of, you know, the, the mess as, as wasteful, but it's a necessary part of creativity. And so um, one of the things that we found ourselves doing is um, you know, trying to, to stage um, activities with our collaborators and partners very early on in the process of working together um, where we enact that kind of messy process in the microcosm. And then we talk together about what it feels like to be in a, pro in a space of uncertainty, um, how that works and what, it, what sort of relationship we need to build between each other to make it possible to hold that. And I actually think um, I've probably learned more from, uh, from theatre as a discipline over the last 10 years than I have of any other um, disciplines, partly because the, the relationship that uh, actors, especially if they're, if they're doing improvisation, have to hold together at a very high level of trust the rules that they're relying on so that they can be spontaneous and work, work together. That's all done by a lot of consideration into the quality of relationship that's built um, in, the, in the team. And I think if you get that right at the outset of doing the work together, you can go a long way um, and be much more radical in uh, the possibilities that you're working on together because you have a solid base to work into that uncertainty from yeah oh jenny there are so many more questions that have come through but we're really short on time now so um i'm just gonna slip in one last one from from me um which is from your perspective how how would you sort of describe so you've just talked a little bit about your 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 process but how would you describe your personal craft as a designer like what does that actually look like day to day are there any particular 
rituals or, or methods or practices that sort of enable and support you to, to do this work that you might might share with us? Oh, Rebecca, that's such a, such a difficult question, interesting question. I get, for some reason, the thing that comes into my mind, maybe because I was talking about theatre, um, is that I, I, think, I think of this work as, as being somehow about like peeling back the, peeling back the layers uh, of what's there to try and uncover what wants to be expressed. So years ago, I was lucky enough to, um, to work with a theatre director friend of mine, Ian Prinsley, um, who took us through a, a process of learning to act a very short David Mamet play. And the way he took us through it was to go through imagining where you are. So where are you physically? And then imagining what time is it? What time, what era is it? What time is it? And then imagining where you've come from and where you're going to. And so we're going through all these, these layers one by one. So you're doing the, the, the play over and over again until you get right to, the, to the, what's at the very core of it, which is what is it that wants to be expressed? What is it that this character is trying to express in this moment at this time? And I really took it as a kind of analogy for sort of service design, system design, because it's somehow about sitting long enough with what is there that you can start to see what wants to emerge, what wants to be expressed. Um, so it's a very energetic kind of um, experience, I think, to, to try and sort of tap into that channel and, and bring that out. So uh, that's not really my craft, but it's uh, something that I was fortunate to learn about. Yeah, that sounds amazing and is uh, a lovely note to end on um, because unfortunately that's all we have time for. But thank you so much, Jenny, for sharing um, your really inspiring work and, and thoughtful responses to all the questions. It's been brilliant to learn from your your wisdom and your learnings <laughs> and to, to better understand the role for design in systems innovation towards a better future. Um, before wrapping up, we want to take one more opportunity to congratulate our winners of the 2021 Student Design Awards. We are so excited to see what radical creativity you guys will bring into the world. And as, as Jenny said earlier, um, I love this, I made a note of it, um, that this year's SDA cohort already has the collective capacity to imagine and shape the worlds to come. So if, if you haven't met them yet and you're watching, then do visit the RSA Student Design Awards um, winners gallery to learn more about the project. There's a, a link going in the chat right now and, and do also reach out to our team if you're interested in collaborating on an SDA brief um, for the coming year. And as we close out this evening, um, do also stay online just for the next few moments as we pay one last tribute to uh, the winners and give them a final sort of virtual round of applause from wherever you are, are, are watching this um, around the world. Thank you all for uh, attending and have a wonderful evening. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.